be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. podcast where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole one episode at a time using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and the wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the fifth overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 4, often known, depending where you look, as Season 1, Episode 5, Episode 5, or what the German regionalization team named The One-Armed Man. I'm your host, John. In Episode 4, Deputy Andy sketches Bob based on Sarah Palmer's description and Leland condescendingly brings up her other vision at the end of the pilot. Jacoby thinks every problem is of a sexual nature before he roundaboutly connects Leo to Laura's final night. Gordon calls in with good information on Laura's autopsy results. Josie stakes out Ben and Catherine while the lawmen dubiously question Philip Gerard. Audrey and Donna share some information in the bathroom. Cooper and Harry investigate a veterinarian office. Bobby and Shelley plan solutions to their Leo problem, and Cooper admits at the shooting range to a broken heart in his past. James gets hypnotized by meeting Maddie Ferguson, Audrey talks her dad into giving her a job, and the lawmen learn Waldo the Minor Bird is owned by Jacques, who also has a planted bloody shirt of Leo's in his place, while Leo gets hired for arson by Ben. James and Donna discover the necklace they buried was stolen, and all of this was done while Hank was getting out on parole and threatening Josie with a pencil sketch. I know this was back in season one, but a path is formed by laying one stone at a time, and we have questions left after we've seen all the stones laid down throughout Twin Peaks. The questions we'll be dealing with this week? What are the two Twin Peaks that are revealing themselves here? How is Cooper's investigative technique best suited to this environment? How does memory affect reality in Twin Peaks? What kind of presence is Laura Palmer? How do people cope with the darkness? And what does Hank Jennings' arrival signify? So as always, we're going to start by looking into the production history back when this episode was originally being made. So episode four was written by Robert Engels and directed by Tim Hunter. Tim Hunter knew Lynch from AFI where they went to film school together. Per Twin Peaks Unwrapped, Tim Hunter said it was the first class when the program started in 1970. He also explained to them the process that it was seven to eight days of prep, which entails exterior location scouting, production meetings, that kind of thing, uh, followed by seven or eight days of shooting. Um, he said, like, just in general, I mean, this is like even beyond Twin Peaks. You'd be lucky to have the script before you get there. And um, in the beginning, everybody knew that Twin Peaks was something special. Like, everybody knew it. Another particularly Twin Peaks thing that Hunter noticed is that all the actresses had this certain calmness to them, which he credited as a Lynchian casting trait. Uh, he said that on the artists and DVD commentaries. Um, he said that the ad, uh, 
the uh, magic trick that Russ Tamblin was doing, that was actually something Russ Tamblin brought to it himself. And um, usually ad-libbing wasn't done, but he couldn't, uh, but Hunter couldn't remember if, uh, if it was approved by him or sanctioned by like somebody higher up the ladder, but everybody went with it. It was fine. Um, that llama that we'll see later on, um, Hunter actually was driving past a llama farm on the way to work, and he he just thought, you know, it's like, wouldn't that be neat? So he asked production, and they said, sure. One other thing Hunter says about the um, the production of Twin Peaks in particular is how there's those 200 sound cues that Lori Eschler kind of had a, a handle on, and she would work with every director about it you know like sometimes it gets sped up sometimes it gets slowed down but um you know like she she was able to help the director figure out the exact mood that they wanted and um he um hunter basically said that at the very end the final scene that he did was three separate music cues sewn together and um yeah, it's just, it's really interesting how it's not necessarily just Battle of Mente. It's collaborative there as well. One thing Robert Engels said about Tim Hunter is that the Dutch angles that he does, the uh, the skewed camera angles, um, they were allowed for Hunter because he was the closest thing to what David Lynch and Mark Frost wanted for the show. So being such a natural, he was allowed to do whatever he wanted. And speaking of Bob Engels, he was he was the writer of this episode, and this was his first involvement with Twin Peaks. Um, how how he was connected uh, wasn't through Lynch, but it was through Frost, and uh, it was through the Minnesota side where uh, Frost grew up. So um, when Engels was seventeen, Warren Frost was the was his professor back at the University of Minnesota. Um, he's um, Engels basically said to Twin Peaks Unwrapped uh, in their book, uh, he's known Mark since he was 12. So that's <laughs> that's kind of a funny thing to, to have as a memory of your boss on a TV show. Engels and Frost also knew uh, Chris Mulkey from Minnesota, and um, Engels actually wrote Hank specifically for him. Um the uh, the Twin Peaks parole board, he also said, was from mostly Minnesota actors. Uh, per uh, per the essential wrapped in plastic, um, at the time there was a Wise Guy episode that was also from a small town uh, that involved logging and everything. And uh, Engels actually worked on that show. He got hired to do Wise Guy the same day he got hired to write a script for Twin Peaks. And um, per The Essential Wrapped in Plastic by John Thorne, he said, um, everybody thinks I brought that to Wise Guy. Or I brought the Wise Guy story from Twin Peaks to it. Uh, but but as he says, they um, the, the Wise Guy people were already planning it when he got there. So it doesn't say how he um, got the job on Wise Guy, but I know how he got a um, call from Mark Frost. He um, He said this one. Basically, Frost told him, this show is really screwy. You'd be really good at it. Um, one particular thing that he was good at was that a lot of Cole's dialogue, uh, a lot of Gordon Cole's dialogue was by Engels because he had an aunt who was hard of hearing. As far as the writing itself, the, per the Artists and DVD Season 1 commentary, um, in general, and this goes throughout at least the first season, um, Engels said the three shows that we all loved and referenced were The Fugitive, Wild Wild West, and Mayberry. That's the Andy Griffith show. Um, and he also mentioned how noir, like noir, they um, they named a lot of things after noir shows. Okay, so we've heard from the people creating the show, and now we're gonna start dissecting the um the log lady intro that david lynch wrote back when everybody thought there was not going to be any more twin peaks and he was gonna give everybody a final word to think about while they watched the show so this week margaret says even the ones who laugh are sometimes caught without an answer these creatures who introduce themselves but swear we have met them somewhere before yes Look in the mirror. What do you see? Is it a dream or a nightmare? Are we being introduced against our will? Are they mirrors? 
I can see the smoke. I can smell the fire. The battle is drawing nigh. Okay, so when I first heard about this one, it seemed a little dramatic to me. You know, it's like, ooh, Hank comes to town. Okay, but um, now that I've been looking into it a little bit deeper for this podcast, um, it ends up making a lot more sense that it would be that dramatic. Um, so so let's look into it uh, piece by piece, even though the ones who laugh. So um, that to me says, like, the people that are generally trying to be positive or are positive – um, they, they can be confronted with darkness. Uh, so, you know, even the places that don't usually see the darkness can be confronted with it. And that just means like any place in Twin Peaks is fair game for this. Um, you know, we'll see later, you know, Nadine's, uh, darkness. We'll see, um, um, uh, yeah, it, it's just all over, you know, comic relief or otherwise, like it's, it's, it's fair game. Um, so yeah, is it a dream or a nightmare? So like the the people that are kind of being influenced by the dreamy side of Twin Peaks, that that weather pattern that I've been talking about of lodge space kind of like changing the frequency of like how people see the place. Um, you know, it's like they might be stuck in a dream, but then you might be able to notice eventually that the dream is actually a nightmare. So it can change it can change gradually or it could just be a realization but yeah it's it's all available like uh, all you have to do is look into a mirror and sometimes you see somebody else um <clears throat> you know like what do you do when you see the thing in the mirror uh, you know i i read that uh, from a from a plot point of view obviously as bob but um you know it's like anytime you see darkness because in this in this part of twin peaks the mirror seems to signify what is in the interior space, which is oftentimes going to be portrayed through darkness. So Margaret also says, I can see the smoke. I can smell the fire. Um, it reminds me of things that we'll see later on and in, in like the term scorched engine oil, that kind of thing, the smell, the smoke, you know, these are the visible signs of the effect of lodge space. Uh, but in this particular episode, it's easy to read it as arson because this is the first time Catherine and Ben bring up arson. And, um, you know, Leo never heard of the job of arson before this episode either. Uh, so, you know, from a plot point of view, it's kind of a, a, a froofy way to say, <laughs> you know, arson is coming. But it also totally matches up with all the themes. Uh, yeah, so... Um, even if against, um, you know, the, there's the, the whole thing about, you know, are we being introduced against our will? Um, it works out well with the menace of Bob, especially being seen by people immediately in that sketch. You know, it's like Bob is the first thing we basically see uh, besides the back of Andy's head. Um, but it ends up also... Um, <clears throat> It ends up also showing the influence of Hank throughout this episode. And um, it's a similar negative wave that you can see and you can, well, I mean, I'm, <laughs> the townsfolk can smell him and all that. But, you know, it's like all the stuff, like we can smell what he's going to be doing with uh, Josie based on his threatening at the end. Um, whether it's supernaturally inclined or not, there's plenty of darkness that we're going to be able to recognize in this episode. Okay, so we're at the part after where we look into the production. We're after when David Lynch had his final say, and we're finally going to start looking at the particular episodes based on how... Um, all of season three and all of fire walk with me and like all of the details through the end of the series uh, might add perspective to what we're seeing here. Okay. So our first avenue of inquiry today is basically about the, um, the duality that I just kind of hinted at, um, you know, what are the two twin peaks that are revealing themselves here in this episode? Um, so yeah, a lot of darkness, log lady interest talking about it. Um, you know, from, from Bob being written down on paper, being said aloud in a lot of ways, uh, um, 
but it's not just the metaphysical stuff. It's also arson is coming to the surface. The, uh, the drug scene is getting bigger and more, um, more laid out as Hank becomes more visible. And, um, what's, um, what's really interesting that I didn't even notice until this read through of the, of the, of the episode, but there's a part of this episode that, um, I mean, it's, I, I never even really noticed this about episode four until I really watched through deeply, like even more deeply than usual this time. Um, Engels filled the script with doubles this time. You know, it's, it's, um, there, there's a detail that relates specifically to Laura's investigation, but then there's a matching detail that matches up with the greater town, whether it's the Jacques investigation or just, you know, random things like Hank arriving. Um, you know, we have, um, Audrey and Hank both getting jobs from family members after lying about how badly they want to change. You know, it's like they use the same wording all the way through. I mean, I'll, I'll look in all these points later on. Um, but you know, there's a drawing of Bob, there's a drawing of the domino, uh, they both have a similar connotation and a similar execution of how to get that idea across. Um, Bobby and Josie both leave out their complicities when they're telling their loved one about what's going on with things. Um, there's um, Andy and Shelley both need to learn how to shoot a gun. You know, it's like there's all these all these parallels. Um, even even when Sarah Palmer says, you know, Bob, you know, he he. He looked like an animal. And then, you know, what do we get later? We get a veterinarian's office filled with animals. I mean, it's it's kind of all over the place. Um, you know, even Bob Lidecker, you know, it's like uh, Mike sees um, Mike sees Bob in his dream. And then Philip Gerard, uh, his his best friend, um, not his familiar this time, but his best friend is uh, also in a coma, stuck in kind of a dreamland right now. Uh, you know, I mean, there's more of this all over the place, but there's, I mean, it's, it's here and it seems like it's a little bit more, uh, more put together than just coincidence all the way through. So there's these two levels to Twin Peaks. There's the kind of metaphysical one. There's the kind of physical one. And then Cooper comes in and just absolutely loves the place. You know, it's like he's connecting to this place all over and he seems to be able to, uh, you know, solve crimes based in these two areas at once. And um, I mean, basically the question is, how is Cooper's investigative technique best suited to this environment? I'm going to look into this question through three quotes from this episode. Uh, first thing off, we get, I'm a strong sender, which is why he didn't go over to Sarah's while she was describing the picture of Bob. Um so first of all, he knows this about himself. I'm assuming that's in keeping with how he got the Tibetan method uh, with the rock throw. You know, it's like he just knows by now that he has this ability within dreaming that, you know, it's like maybe he can influence people around him, uh, which kind of describes how he dealt with the part or yeah, part 17 and 18 of uh, season three. But we'll get there later. As far as right now, there's... Um, how he has this kinship with the town um you know it's like being being in touch with a dreamy frequency um is it kind of like does he feel at home with all this portal adjacency in the air um or is he picking up on the positive frequency like um like his other influence, you know, like how he talked about wanting to get real estate and everything. Like, is he picking up on the positive side that's coming out of this lodge adjacency? Um, what we um, what we see here uh, mostly, uh, how how we see that come through here is, uh, you know, after Harry says that he didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night, which means Harry wasn't really doing so well um, with the higher the higher level of himself after he decked Albert and he was waiting for the repercussions. Uh, Harry, I mean, um, Cooper says, Harry, the last thing I want you to worry about while I'm here is some city slicker I brought into your town relieving himself upstream. So, like, is the town a strong sender? And, like, 
giving him only the the positive side of things. I mean, Cooper wants to leave this place the way he's met it, which means that he likes how it is. And, um, you know, it's like I know we can see the darkness with Laura's investigation and everything, but as far as the town, he seems to have a rosy-colored view of what's going on. Later on, he'll say, Gentlemen, when two separate events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same object of inquiry, we must always pay strict attention. Um, in the actual context, Gordon's uh, just given them info over the phone about a parrot or a minor bird wounds, uh, plus about the poker chip. And um, it ends up leading to Jacques, who uh, will be the owner of the one. one I mean, he'll he's. Uh, it will lead them to Jacques, who is the bird owner, as well as connected to the One-Eyed Jack's poker chip. <clears throat> and um, both sides of those clues end up leading into Laura's investigation as they connect the dots. So Cooper knew that it was worth paying attention to and that it probably would lead into Laura's investigation. And the last thing that Cooper said that I'm going to focus on is... Um, Harry, and, you know, this is when we have that great llama interaction. In the heat of the investigative pursuit, the shortest distance between two points is not necessarily a straight line. And, uh, you know, the actual context is because the bird that attacked Laura is a client of this office, which will lead to Jacques, uh, to Jacques being a clue. Um, but it mirrors the earlier question where they um, where they get to the one-armed man. Um, when um, when Coop asks how long it takes to get to the place where Hawk called them about, um, we get Andy and uh, and um, Harry saying at the same time, 10 minutes, half an hour. And Andy says, it depends how you go. Um, so there's time in relation to physical distance. And then there's time in relation to understanding. And that really comes out. And, you know, the, the straightest or the uh, <laughs> the shortest distance has mostly to do with actual understanding. And really, in this case, it's kind of like how uh, Cooper could have taken the socket in uh, part three of season three. Um, he could have taken the three socket or the 15 socket. And um, it seems like the three socket would have put him in episode three in in a plot that he wasn't ready to deal with. Whereas they put him out in uh, 15 when he was able to wake up and, you know, say things like I am the FBI and just, you know, take charge. Um, <clears throat> in this case, how I'm seeing that relate to here is that the, um, the lead from Hawk took them to Philip Gerard, but it did not take them to Mike. So the straightest path to the information they need actually takes them into an episode in season two. So it took a lot longer than 10 minutes and it took a lot longer than a half an hour. So bringing up the difference between Mike and Philip Gerard, um, depending on whether you feel like Lodge Denizens are masking memories over trauma, um, it kind of tells whether you see spirits as spirits or as a delusion. And um, there's good evidence for all of the above. I mean, there's even a good, um, there will be good evidence that um, the delusion kind of creates the um, the uh, spirits and the spirits end up taking a life of their own. I mean, there, it's, it's all, it's all uh, wibbly wobbly gray space. Um, there's there's enough characters though in this in this series that have seen the spirits in the same shape and i say that they're independent entities you know it's not exclusively just like masking stuff um so in that way i don't think philip gerard is sheerly delusional but um in this in this particular scene, when we find him in that hotel, it also seems like he was just going, you know, about his business, getting dressed after a shower, and he somehow didn't hear Andy's gun going off right outside his door. So, like, he's he's got a weird kind of, like, non-connection to uh, where he is. Um, so, after three episodes, Hawk finally finds Gerard. 
Um, and then we see Gerard's body shown, you know, like his actual body, like not covered up by a shirt or anything. And, um, you know, instead of getting him talking like he's, you know, uh, one chance out between, you know, like he's not Mike. <laughs> he is certainly not that. He's all golly gee, kind of like he is a character out of Mayberry, just like Deputy Andy. Um, and, um, you know, when when uh, when Cooper and the guys are questioning him, um, he says this, which is really curious to me about Bob kind of looks like somebody, doesn't it? So he can't remember his dream sides familiar, yet he feels like he should be able to be, you know, that he feels like Bob should be able to be recognized. So, like, there's no value judgment from Philip Gerard on Bob, but there could be, you know, it's like if, if he it, it's almost like he knows that if he changed that frequency dial a little bit, he would be able to know exactly who this is. <clears throat> It's a it's a good turn of phrase that Engels put in on there. It also makes me wonder if uh, if that inability to recognize has something to do with when he cut his arm off, but that's a whole different thing. And um, it doesn't really jive with uh, Fire Walk with me, but, I mean, that could be where the barrier came from. Uh, so another, another interesting <laughs> parallel is Gerard says, the tattoo said, Mom! And... Um, you know, that has nothing to do with what Cooper said it was, which was fire, walk with me. Um, but if you compare the the invocation of fire, walk with me and mom, does that mean mother? Like, um, you know, mother's just outside the door, which uh, in part three, uh, we hear all American girls saying. And does that mean Judy is on the table? Oh, just putting it out there. We will probably be able to discuss that, especially in Firewalk with me, but maybe, maybe earlier, maybe later. And Gerard's disconnection here seems really similar to how Leland has disconnections with his Bob side. Um, you know, like we'll, we'll get in, in episode 16, uh, we'll get all the returned memories from, from Bob. You know, it's like when I pull the ripcord, he'll remember everything, you know, like that, that whole deal. So like, there's a certain part of um, of the human being that I think can be masked over, uh, like like separated from their dark side, uh, so that they're not even able to see it. Um, and it kind of helps explain. Um, it it kind of helps explain how um, Leland might be behaving in this episode. So um, let's assume that. Leland is completely disconnected from his Bob side here. Like, why is he angry at Sarah earlier in the episode? Um, it's, you know, he brings up, you know, she had two visions and it's like super dismissive and it's super just like, he's done with this stuff. And um, is he, is he angry because of how she treated him after his coffin dive? I mean, like there's, the the human side of things says like you know it's like sure he's uh he's a crying guy but you know he also like just is kind of done with this whole thing like he wants to put behind him and he's like yeah uh, but but let's say there's bob influence too like why would why would bob allow leland to reveal the second vision well um he didn't take the necklace you know, it's like he put half of it on um, <clears throat> on a dirt mound and everything, but um, he wasn't the one who had the other half. So this could possibly be taking the trail off of Bob and Leland. You know, it, it could also be he's possessive of his things and, you know, Laura's his thing. The necklaces are his thing. And uh, maybe he just wants it found. So, like, why not bring it up to the lawman? They can maybe get it for him. Who knows? Okay, so we've been talking about Philip Gerard and Mike. We've been talking about Leland and Bob. And um, there's the um, <laughs> there's the other presence that we get in this episode, which is Laura. I mean, she shows up again. We see her in... Um, we see her mostly this time in Maddie. 
and you know it's not like a a possession thing but um james when um you know he's at the diner he's listening to I mean, he's he's calling Donna and getting info on uh, <laughs> diet lasagna and everything else in the background over on on Donna's side. And I tell you what, diet lasagna seems like a blue rose case if I ever heard one. It's very unnatural to uh, to Doc Hayward, and he expresses it in the most happy way possible, which was awesome to see. But um, James wasn't really on that frequency at all. It's like you know he could listen to Donna, he could. Um, he could interact with her and he does make plans, which he keeps. So he's obviously not super hypnotized, but when he sees Maddie, he just locks on to her and he focuses so much that, you know, it's like he basically uh, gets off the phone as quick as he can with Donna and he just stares at Maddie. He gets right up in her face, staring at her. And um, for some reason, when she turns and notices that he's right there, like she smiles at him, which, you know, I, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't do, but um, she smiles and then she removes her glasses, which is a thing she will do um, as she kind of becomes more and more uh, Laura. And like, you know, she tells, she tells uncle Leland that on the morning when she dies, you know, it's like she, she kind of liked being Laura. And um, In this case, I don't know if it, I don't know if it means that James is a strong sender, even though he's kind of dumb as a brick. <laughs> but um, he um, he's like projecting seeing Laura on her, and you know it's it's you know obviously she's the same actress, blah blah blah. But um, you know it's like we get her first physical Laura move is removing the glasses, and um, what information we get is um you know we we she says how um the stuff about you know sarah she's too broken to cook and uh leland just dances around with old records and everything so like we get confirmation of what we see right before cooper's dream in episode two uh we also get information that um laura and maddie whenever maddie would come to visit they used to pretend to be sisters so you know, she's kind of getting projected, Laura projected onto her, but she's become Laura before intentionally with Laura right there. Um, so in a lot of ways, you know, Maddie is the perfect vessel to repeat the behavior uh, through lodge space adjacent uh, metaphysical kind of ways. Um they um they also make a physical connection, which probably means something. Um, but you know, like they they shake hands at the end, and you know she says James Hurley by full name and like everything. So like there's there's a connection uh, made between them, like while he's like totally wowed by um you know Laura sort of returning physically. Uh, another way that we see. Uh, Laura is uh, really abstractly. It's more just in you know thematic ways. Uh, Bernie Renault uh, got tied up basically the same kind of way by Leo. So I mean that's there probably more as just a misdirection that Leo knows how to do that sort of stuff, and you know they need to keep the suspect thing going for Leo. Um, but um, but as far as later, we get. Um, when Donna's talking to James, she says that um, Sarah's vision about Bob and that um, Laura also had spooky dreams. So they're kind of connected to the same source, Sarah and Laura, um, which, you know, seems uh, lodge spacey. Um, you're Audrey to Donna. We, uh, we learn for sure that Ronette and Laura both worked at the perfume counter together. Um, so, we do know that the writers still know who Ronette is, even though they don't talk about Ronette. You know, it's like I um, I kind of noticed some fridging happening, even though one character really hasn't been fridged at all. That uh, still kind of happens. It's more about, you know, Ronette is there to forward the plot of Laura. So it's not to forward the hero, but it is to forward the investigation. Um, show was written in 1990. That's about all I can say there. You know, it's it's uh, it's about seven years before the term fridging um, 
had a scene to go with in Green Lantern. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to talk about. I don't really like it, but I have to point at it every time I see Ronette show up and uh, wonder why she didn't show up more often. So the last time we see Laura's presence show up or a detail about Laura show up is when Jacoby is talking to Cooper um, in when uh, Cooper is interrogating him at the sheriff's station. Um, so Jacoby says, uh, Laura had secrets around those secrets. She built a fortress that in my six months with her, I was not able to penetrate. And for what I consider myself an abject fa- failure. So Jacoby kind of uh, mythologizing the, uh, the the whole that uh, Laura has an effect on him. But in this, we get the detail that uh, Laura was only seeing him for six months. Um, so, yeah. And, um, you know, medic- she's trying to medicate, um, you know, by seeing him by, um, you know, the cocaine was uh, her way of <laughs> trying to medicate, which he thought was a po- or, yeah, a positive sign. But we will we will get into a little bit more about the uh, the drug side of thing um, later on. But here, that's pretty much where Laura's presence in the episode ends. And it's time to move on to the next thing. Okay, so at this point, we have multiple levels of darkness um, coming into the town, coming over the town to the various characters. And... Um, so how is everybody generally coping with all this darkness coming at them? Um, well, Josie, I mean, she's, uh, <laughs> she's being framed and she's really worried about probably losing her life and definitely the mill. So um, what is she doing? She's taking pictures at the, um, at the motel and, you know, she's trying to protect herself. She's probably trying to figure out how to blackmail Ben and Catherine. Yet when Harry calls about it, um, or when when, she, when he calls her out about it, you know, it's like she's being all lovey-dovey, like, oh, I miss you. And then, um, then he asks her, like, what she was doing over at the motel today. And she says, oh, I have to go. Call me tomorrow. Bye. And, you know, like, like gives him zero chance to say anything. You know, like, why why is she keeping it secret? Um, is she is she actually keeping Harry safe from from the situation, like keeping him out of it so his name can stay clear? Um, is she um, keeping him as part of her protection plan? Um, you know, it's it's probably a little bit of both because I mean, she's lied to Harry already about um, her place in this whole thing. And uh, tried to blame it all on Ben and Catherine. So, I mean, I, I think she's playing both sides of this one. Um, and, you know, like, what what else does this attitude of hers come from? Um, it comes from the fact that she knows Hank. And Hank in this episode really means something. So, um, yeah, she's, um, she's kind of getting covered over by it and... Um, trying to protect herself all at the same time, but she's keeping secrets while doing it. And Donna is also a secret keeper. I mean, she teams up with Audrey, but only if it can be kept a secret. Uh, she, you know, James wants to tell the police, but, um, you know, that the necklace had been taken, but Donna needs it to say a secret or stay a secret. Um, why? Nobody loved her, but us. So, I kind of wonder if like when she says love, it's like, is that her way of trying to keep this like undiluted positive intention? Um, You know, the intention behind the fire, you know, positive or negative is, um, is she trying to keep the negative out and only the people who love her are going to be the answer? Um, But her, um, I mean, what, what it really seems like though, I mean, you know, she wants it to be that way, but she's got this negative framework around her. You know, it's like, she's, she's kind of traumatized by this whole thing. Um, 
you know, Nadine and Ben, you know, in, in the future, they're going to have their own little things where they like try to work out their issues in a public setting, which is like overall healthy for their growth. But it's in this weird negative framework of like, you know, this massive delusion. And I kind of think Donna's doing that right now, too, where she should be thinking like James where you know it's like let's bring people into this let's bring the police into this to find find answers and Donna just isn't into that at all you know she uh, and another part of it is she's telling him we have to do this for us not just for her so it's it's like not only is she trying to solve the murder, but she's also trying to get out from under the shadow of Laura. You know, she needs to get something good with James going on. And the only way to do that is to uncouple from the darkness that um, Laura was draping over her life in a lot of ways. It's not exactly a trigger, but um, when, when, um, Donna heard um, the uh, the detail from Audrey that uh, Laura was seeing Jacoby. I almost feel also the the Donna was hurt by that. You know, it's like um, you're not the only super close confidant. You know, the 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 super safe uh, confidant where you know you you could tell the problems to to the one person. You know, it's like Donna is not that one person, and. Um, you know, she being of the secrets and uh, Laura having so many secrets, um, you know, Donna isn't the only one to trust here. And um, it's it it's um, kind of a pattern with Donna, too, because we'll see her react the same way with Harold, um, you know, and, and Harold does the exact same thing that Donna does, where they're both keeping the secrets to themselves. You know, it's like, oh, I have the secret diary, but I'm keeping the memory of Laura pure, you know, just, there's um it donna's donna's an interesting knot so is harold we'll get to that later but um yeah the the keeping of secrets you know it's like donna might think it's doing a good thing but i think more than anything it's protecting her and um maybe giving her a way to heal from all the stuff that's been happening to her with this relationship too Okay, so there's another thing that uh, Jacoby was talking about where um, Laura medicating was a good sign and he brings up the way um, the way monks in Tibet use ginger. Um, yeah, I mean, Cooper called Cooper called out Jacoby that cocaine and ginger are not the same thing at all, but the instinct is there. And you can kind of see that happening sometimes in here, too. Um you know, it's like Norma and Shelly, they're talking about their men and, you know, the problems that they're bringing into their lives. And, um, you know, what do they do to problem solve? Well, it's a short term thing, planning a day of beauty, manicure, facial, the works. Um, you know, it's like it, it gives them good, uh, a good positive uh, base to heal in, but it doesn't actually fix the problems. Um, you know, Josie, she uh, she steps away from from her problems with Harry by um, agreeing to go fishing with Pete. You know, she's really enjoying that friendship and that friendship is really solid. Um, one thing that I want to point out about that one is that Engels and uh, uh, Robert Engels in the artisan DVD commentary, he says the Pete Josie connection was supposed to be stronger, but time shorter scripts, etc., made the relationship get lost by the end of the mill fire. Um, I was paraphrasing, but yeah, I mean, the point is that it was more unlucky than planned that the Josie Pete relationship would disappear uh, by the end of the season. And that was one of the neater things. And that would have actually helped flesh out Josie in uh, multiple directions instead of just being a mysterious um, lady embroiled in all this nonsense. But I'd say in general, more than medicating the the thing that most of the people navigating the uh the darker frequencies of twin peaks are doing uh, relates to drugs so the person closest to laura messed up in this is bobby and he comes clean to shelly about how leo's connected to the drugs and selling to laura even like he brings up laura's name to her um 
And, you know, of course he doesn't implicate himself at all. He keeps himself out of it, you know, just kind of like the same, well, actually the same exact way that Josie protects herself from Harry by taking herself out of the implications. Um, yeah. So, so Bobby and Shelly are kind of getting somewhere with it. You know, they want to, uh, they want, you know, like, um, Shelly gives him the bloody shirt and everything. And it seems like, you know, one thing they could do right then is go directly to the police, just like Donna. But they kind of want to, um, they, they kind of want to solve their Leo problem in a roundabout way too. kind of like the day of beauty doesn't really solve Hank or Leo problems for them, uh, for, uh, for <laughs> Shelly and Norma. Um, these problems like, they're they're kind of redirecting their worries you know shelly she brings out her gun and it's like she kind of outsourced the thing to like you know it's like now that i have the gun the gun can solve the problem and um you know bobby's like now that i have the shirt you know this could be the answer to our prayers um it's a it's a thing like where like it, it's in the wishful thinking category and instead of going straight to the police to solve the problem he wants to try to do this elaborate framing job against leo so like they're both actually trying to solve the leo problem but they're doing it indirectly you know it's like they want to um it, it it's almost like how the horns bring in jacoby instead of trying to solve the problem themselves with johnny horn um it's it's just uh yeah it's a thing like that um and then bobby's tone of voice you know it's like you never saw this and bobby will take care of this and like you know anybody who uses their name in the third person it kind of makes me wonder almost if um if bobby referring to himself in the third person is kind of almost like giving himself a nickname like you know laura referring to herself as the homecoming queen or something like that um and that you know usually kind of that that provides uh, a tag for me that you know somebody's a little bit in the negative frequency so um they don't seem like they're gonna like get too far with actually solving their problems Okay, and then this is where we can go into the question, what does Hank Jennings' arrival signify? I mean, he's been coming up in this episode already, like the way that I've had to talk around him. And, um, you know, he's got, he's got himself connected to both Ben Horn and Leo in uh, different capacities. But, um, yeah, he's, he's connected in the drug, the drug scene with, um, yeah, which... Um, Hank is already connected to Ben and Leo. Those guys are obviously messed up into things. Um, you know, we'll find out later he's connected to, to Josie as well. So he's playing, he's playing both sides of pretty much every, um, every secret conflict between the, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the darker characters in this show. And Yet here he's paralleled with both Audrey Horn and Bob. Um, so between him and Audrey, they both make a huge case to uh, to their family members. You know, Audrey, she gets a job at One Eye Jacks because she says, oh, daddy, I want to be part of the business. I I, I want to change. And, um, you know, in, in Hank's parole, uh, in <laughs> the uh, the parole hearing, he uh, he literally says, I'll change. I swear on my life. I have changed. So he uses the same exact persuasive technique. Um, and um, the way he says it in the parole hearing, it reminds me of the way Anthony Sinclair used change uh, where he, uh, you know, he's he's been revealed by, <laughs> quote unquote, Dougie and, and um, Bushnell Mullins. And he says that he has to either die or change. And um yeah, so changing is, uh, I mean, it, it becomes an alchemical sort of thing, which I will go into as we go on. But um, yeah, it's uh, changing has something in mind here. Um, and either, either Hank was using it as a sob story that triggers Norma to vouch for him, or he... Um, was just trying to convince everybody, you know, it's like maybe, maybe he even wanted to half believe it in this case so that it would help him get out. 
you know, like part of him maybe wanted to believe it. But, um, you know, then he gets parole and, uh, you know, Norma gets a call at the diner and they tell him, you know, they, they tell her he's coming home. And, um, you know, again, that reminds me of the way Leland said home the other day or the other episode where um, Hawk and Cooper are trying to get him out of there. And like, you know, he's like in a weird state yet going specifically home. And um, Hank is also in a state going home. Um, I, I think it's another way to hammer home that um, houses aren't actually the secure refuge that um, small town America would have you believe in Twin Peaks. Um, and now it's happening again to Norma. Okay, now I've been talking around Audrey this episode too. She um, she starts off talking. I've been doing some research. In real life, there is no algebra. So like it's it's this um, it's this really fun turn of phrase that really catches the ear, but it also basically says one of the themes that, um, you know, things are investigated in Twin Peaks that aren't even real. I thought that was an interesting detail to throw in. And um, yeah, so she um, she finishes talking to Donna. And then the next time we see her, Ben's at his exercise back uh, exercise bike back to the camera. And, um, you know, among other things, she says, Daddy, are you ashamed of me? And the best Ben can muster is, Audrey, you're my daughter. And then, you know, he gets around to it that, um, you know, it's not that he's ashamed of her. He just wishes he could depend on her more. And in this scene, this is going to be the only time in the whole show that you can juxtapose Norma Jennings against Ben Horn. And you have to do it with how they feel about their loved ones. Now, as far as comparing Audrey to Hank in this part, um, I would say that Audrey, while it is furthering her investigation with, um, you know, like getting a little bit closer to the department store and learning more about Laura, I think based on the, the expression on her face when she's hugging Ben and he can't see her face, I kind of feel like she actually does want to believe what she's telling him. You know, it's like she's using him to get further, but I think she also does want to have a better relationship with her dad. So the using change as um, a way to get further in their investigation, or I mean, uh, to get further in their um, in their goals, I don't think th that uh, Audrey and Hank are, connection, are connected by intention, but... I do think that Audrey's playing in the same kind of uh, darkness frequency as Hank. And, um, I mean, it gets her captured by one-eyed jacks. It gets her, um, I mean, like, being, being this close to the darkness without, like, intentionally wanting to be there, it'll end up making things, um, things happen in her future. And, um... I mean, it it, it kind of leads the way for the fact that she's Richard Horn's mom too. Um, she's kind of being she's she's riding the line with darkness so much that eventually it does end up hurting her. So that's about where the connection between Audrey and Hank end. And then there's this other strange juxtaposition with Hank and Bob. So after he reveals himself to Josie. And he, you know, he calls her, he says, catch you later. Just like, um, just like he says to Norma after he successfully does his thing in the, in the hearing and he's on the way out the door waiting for their answer. And the way he says it so suspiciously, catch you later. It almost reminds me of, you know, like Willie catcher with a death bag. You know, I mean, obviously I know he's not Bob here. Um, but I think relating relating the words and the phrasing together isn't probably too far off, especially considering the fact that he sends Josie a drawing. And the other drawing that we get at the beginning of the episode is the Bob sketch. You know, those are the only two drawings in the whole show at this point. You know, Bob's the 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 uh, sketch of Bob is a is a 
big reveal of the metaphysical trouble. And then um, the domino at the end is a reveal of physical trouble for Josie. Um, so it's, um, they're both kind of like calling cards of darkness in, in their various levels. You know, the drawings, they, um, they signify the, the, the further involvement of darkness. It's getting closer. And, you know, it's, it's right here. It's basically saying hello through this, um, through this, um, illustration. And, um, <clears throat> it makes me think of this article by David Titterington, um, on uh, 25 years later site. Um, it, it, it'll be up there on TV obsessive too. Um, it's, uh, well, I mean, the article's name is Drawing in Twin Peaks, and um, Titterington basically works his way through um, ideas from this book called A World Through Lines by an English philosopher and artist called, uh, by the name of John Berger. Um, you know, he, puts, he puts all this through a Twin Peaks lens eventually. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some stuff about uh, the different kinds of drawings. The, this is from the article. Drawings communicate by using different temporal dimensions or tenses. Present tense drawings record what we see in front of us. A nude model, a landscape, a Leland, anything in our waking world. Conditional tense drawings, on the other hand, record ideas and dreams about what could be, should be, and would be. The third type, past tense drawings, are sketches from memory which is a different kind of dreaming and a different kind of present moment experience. Through this third type of drawing, artists can, according to Berger, exercise a memory like it's a demon in order to take an image out of the mind once and for all and put it on paper. Berger says the imagery can be anything, a bug, a bob, uh, a bomb, a bob, Sweet, sad, frightening, attractive, or cruel, but each has its own way of being unbearable. So Titterington, right in the article, puts Bob in this um, past tense sort of uh, situation as far as illustrations go. And um, it feels like Sarah is achieving a certain kind of exorcism here. And, um, you know, she's able to kind of express herself again. You know, she's able to... Um, call the truth of her memory out and um, give it to the police, which, you know, everybody else is saying, you know, no, no, let's keep it secret. And um, yeah, so it's, I, I would say that's actually a positive sign for Sarah here too, even though it doesn't quite work out in the end. Um, it's, it's a good step in the right direction. As far as Hank's domino, I think that falls more under a present tense sort of, uh, sort of a range. Um, you know, it, it evokes a memory to Josie, but that illustration is more about showing that this is right in front of you now, and it's all about intimidation. So since that previous episode when Harry brought up the presence in the woods, um, you know, it was said aloud then. And ever since we've seen the darkness surfacing, we've and um, and fortifying in this episode. Um, it begins right away with the Bob sketch, and you know the the metaphysical is becoming a physical presence, and um, then we're also getting the worldly level bad guy physically appearing in the form of Hank. And, you know, I mean, technically he didn't walk into town, but, you know, we, we get him on the phone and, you know, it's like he's, he's entrenching himself in these, these other zones, you know, Ben brings him up and now he's connected to Josie. It's like the darkness is getting bigger and stronger and more part of the narrative. So in Twin Peaks, it basically doesn't matter which frequency you're on, whether you're like, even in a positive frequency, the darkness is there and it's go you're you're gonna bump into it in in this narrative eventually because it's always there and there's always a darkness to fight and it reminds me of what margaret said in the log lady intro you know the um the battle is drawing nigh in every single aspect of the story and we will be digging into that as we go. So I think all that's left to be said is 
You have been listening to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. If you want to be part of our monthly mailbag Patreon episode, send your questions, comments, and feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit Ruminations Radio Network for additional great shows such as 25 Yards Later and Ruminations of Red Rum. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com. I'll see you next week as we cover episode 5, the sixth overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.